Good morning, everybody. Um, our Bible reading this morning is 1 Kings chapter 1. And because it's um, such a long chapter, I will be reading only selected verses. So please follow with me. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Sorry, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his servant said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready, with fifty men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. And then there's the list of people that Adonijah drew into his campaign, and also in verse 8, the list of those that he specifically excluded. The story continues with Adonijah preparing for his coronation. And then in verse 11, the prophet Nathan goes to Bathsheba to warn her about Adonijah's plot. And together, they go and speak to King David. First, Bathsheba reminds David of the promise he had made to put Solomon on the throne. And then Nathan comes in to inform King David of Adonijah's intentions to seize the throne. And so we pick up the story now in verse 28. Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed low with her face to the ground, and kneeling before the king said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your lord's servants with you, and set Solomon my son on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my Lord, the king, 
so may he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Kerithites and the Pelethites went down and put Solomon on King David's mule and escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing flutes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab asked, What's the meaning of all the noise in the city? Even as he was speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest, arrived. Adonijah said, Come in. A worthy man like you must be bringing good news. Not at all, Jonathan answered. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Kerithites and the Pelethites, and they have put him on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. From there they have gone up cheering, and the city resounds with it. That's the noise you hear. Moreover, Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne. Also, the royal officials have come to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make Solomon's name more famous than yours, and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. At this, all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon replied, If he shows himself to be a worthy man, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, but if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men, and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon. And Solomon said, Go to your home. Here ends the reading of God's word. Good, thank you, Brenda, very much indeed for that reading. Well, do let's have our Bibles open uh, at that passage. If you haven't got a Bible and would like one, please raise your hand and someone will bring bring a Bible to you. But uh, while that's happening, let me pray and uh, ask for the Lord's help. For the Word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword, 
it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Heavenly Father, may your word do its sharp and penetrating work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for the benefit of those listening on the tape, we're starting a short series this morning in the first 11 chapters of the first book of Kings under the title, King Solomon's Mind. And uh, you might be thinking, well, okay, that sounds like a very strange thing to be doing. Uh, Why on earth are we looking at the life of someone who lived and died 3,000 years ago? Because quite honestly, with all of the pressures and the problems I'm dealing with this week, uh, can this actually help me live out my Christian life? Well, the answer is that the books of 1 and 2 Kings address two big issues which are of enormous importance for every Christian. Uh, The first is the question that we find running all the way through the Old Testament, and it's this. Who is going to win in the ongoing conflict between the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God? Now, if you're thinking, well, that sounds a bit abstract, let me remind you that the evidence for that conflict is all around us everywhere today. In broken homes, broken marriages, broken communities. It's in every single aspect of our culture. And it's the conflict that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 when God said that from the moment of Adam's rebellion onwards there would always be continual war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's a major theme, this, that runs all the way through the Bible. And it's right there in our passage this morning. Because in our passage, chapter 1, the big question is this. Will Satan be able to put his own proud representative on the throne? Or is God going to succeed in placing the man that he has chosen on the throne of his kingdom? That's the first thing. The second thing that we find here, which also runs throughout the Bible, is the question, will God keep his promise? You see, God had made a promise to King David that he would put somebody on his throne after David and that God would preserve that kingdom forever. And from from that point onwards, the question is, well, will God keep that promise? And if God is going to keep that promise, how actually is he going to do it when everything seems to be against it? So the books of 1 and 2 Kings show us actually the same problem, exactly the same kind of problem that we find in our own lives as Christian believers. What is that problem? Well, it is that we know what the promises of God are, 
But so often we find that everything that God is doing in our lives seem to be massive roadblocks that stand in the way of his promises actually being fulfilled. And the books of 1 and 2 Kings are here to reassure us that in spite of the roadblocks, God always keeps his promises. Now in our series, we're going to see how these questions are answered in chapters 1 to 11, which record for us the rise and fall of King Solomon. And here in chapter 1, Solomon arrives on the scene in a very significant way. Uh, The story is told in a style that is typical of many Old Testament stories. Because there's a big problem standing in the way of God keeping his promise to put Solomon on David's throne. And the way that God provides a solution to that problem is meant to encourage us and to build up our faith. Now, there are, I know there's a lot of interesting details in the chapter, but there are four main characters in chapter one. And as we follow the action, and as we see what these four characters are doing, we learn really important lessons about the way that God is working to advance his kingdom in our lives today. And uh, the first thing we begin with this morning is the weakness of King David. There it is on the screen. The weakness of David, verses 1 to 4. Now that's the immediate problem. Because in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, God has made two very important promises to David. One, as we've already seen, is that God will provide an heir to sit on David's throne after him. And the other is, if not quite a a promise in that sense, at least a very strong suggestion that of all of David's sons, Solomon is the one who is most like David because he's the only one who is especially loved by God. So you might remember how in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that uh, Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says, you are to call your son Jedidiah, which means loved by God. And that was God's way of saying to David that this is the son who's going to sit on your throne, Jedidiah, who was also called Solomon. And uh, here in chapter 1 of 1 Kings, we're faced with the question, well, how is God going to fulfill that promise? Because, you see, David is old and frail. He's in no condition to oversee a smooth transition that puts Solomon safely on the throne. So you look at the first verse. The first verse tells us that David is old and well advanced in years. Now, of course, simply being old isn't necessarily a huge problem. Uh, Some of us here this morning are old, and yet uh, most, if not quite all, of our faculties are still in reasonably good working order. 
But David was not in that condition. Uh, Later on in verse 15, we're told that when Bathsheba went to him, he was confined to his bedroom, verse 15. And then towards the very end of the chapter, in verse 47, we find that he's not only confined to his room, he's actually confined to his bed. So David is bedridden. And he also has a medical condition that means that he just can't get warm. Medical experts who've looked at this say that he probably had some kind of degenerative heart condition. So here we have King David in a condition of real physical weakness and need. Now if you ask most uh, Christians, they think of King David as the young man who took down Goliath with a sling and a few stones. And you probably remember that uh, when David took on the challenge of going out to fight Goliath, he said, look, it's no problem. I fought with bears. I fought with lions. I can do this. But now he is a sick, disabled old man. But it's not just that. There's something else here that underlines David's weakness and impotence. Because, you see, this is a man who had a whole series of wives. Now, we don't celebrate that fact. We don't praise him for it. He shouldn't have done it. But he had a number of wives, and he had lots of children. And yet, when they look for a young virgin to take care of David and keep him warm, David is totally unmoved by her beauty. In the story, we're told that they searched throughout the land for the most beautiful young woman they could find. And although she shared his bed, David felt absolutely nothing. And that's not all either, because David is not simply a weakened, impotent old man. He's also become foolish, because he's lacked the wisdom to make adequate preparations for the future. He's been very indecisive in the way that he's controlled his kingdom. And so now, when wise decisions need to be made, David isn't making them. And the future of the kingdom is in grave danger. Indeed, we could almost say that David has put the kingdom of God at risk. And there's obviously an important lesson for us to learn from David's frailty. Because you see, in the Bible, one of the marks of true faith is preparation for the future. True faith, we're told, looks ahead to what God might be doing in the next generation. And it was a sign of David's faltering faith that at this point he'd made no provision for the next generation. And I think there are all kinds of applications for us of that principle. So, for example, as as a church family, what are we doing to prepare 
for the next generation and for the kingdom work here at St. Barnabas when we're gone. And in your own personal life, what are you doing to prepare your children and to prepare your grandchildren to live godly lives? That's the problem, I think, that is underlined here by the frailty of David. But secondly, that problem is magnified and twisted in verses 5 to 10 by the ambition of Adonijah. The ambition of Adonijah. Uh, He's uh, another of David's sons. And he puts himself forward, doesn't he? And he says... I'll be king. He gets a few advisors around him. So we're told that he chooses Joab, who had been one of David's commanders in the army. And he also chooses Abiathar the priest. And these very senior, very experienced men give Adonijah their full support. But you'll also notice that Adonijah very strategically excludes certain people from his inner group. For example, Zadok the priest, uh, Benaiah, another army commander, and Nathan the prophet, and so on. Now the question is, what's really going on here? Well, we're told two important things about Adonijah. The first is that he is an individual of intense personal ambition. His name means Yahweh is his Lord. But his nature contradicts his name, doesn't it? I mean, look at the very first thing we're told about him in verse 5. Verse 5, it says, he put himself forward. Now, not only is he a man of great ambition, He's also an opportunist because his older brothers have already died. Uh, Amnon and Absalom have already been killed. And the interesting thing about young Adonijah is the way that he's described for us here. He puts himself forward. He says, I'll be king. And then he gets chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And at the end of verse 6, notice this, he is described as very handsome and born next after Absalom. Now the reason that the author of 1 Kings puts it like that is to remind us of Absalom. Because you see, Absalom himself was characterized by pursuing power and prestige for himself rather than living a life of service and grace. So, Adonijah takes exactly the same symbols of power that Absalom had done. Because Absalom also chose chariots and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. And Adonijah is described in verse 6 as being very handsome, just like Absalom, be aware of external appearances in the Old Testament. And in case we didn't join up the dots, in case we missed all those similarities, the writer tells us that Adonijah was born next 
after Absalom. And all of those references to Absalom, you see, are nudging us to look for connections. And it's meant to build up for us a picture of an arrogant and self-seeking young man preparing to seize the opportunity of David's weakness to grab the kingdom for himself. And by describing Adonijah like this in verses 5 to 10, what the author is doing is he's saying to us, here is someone who is totally unfit to serve as God's king. You may remember last year in our series on the life of David, we learned that the true marks of kingship are a willingness to serve, a love for the Lord, a genuine concern for the needs of others, and a willingness to put his life on the line for the sake of God's people. See, that's what David was doing, wasn't it? when he took on Goliath the Philistine. That's not just a nice Bible story for children, no. It's teaching us that the person who is fit to be God's king must be willing to lay down his life for God's people. He is to be Christ-like in that particular respect. But Adonijah is the opposite, isn't he? He's an ambitious self-serving opportunist. He's got no vision for the Lord's service. He's got no desire for the Lord's glory. Adonijah couldn't possibly write a psalm if his life depended on it. He's got no vision for the people's good. In fact, he uses other people to advance his own interests. In fact, You think about it like this, if we cast our mind back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and the beginning of the conflict between the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God, well, it's pretty clear, isn't it, which camp Adonijah is in. Now, he is wholly responsible for his behavior. But having said that, Please will you notice what we're told about him in verse 6. This, my dear friends, is very, very significant. In the NIV, it's in brackets. But it says there that his father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? So Adonijah is totally responsible for his own behavior. Yes, he is. But the real tragedy of the situation is this, that David himself made a contribution to what this young man eventually became because he refused to discipline him. He lacked the courage of his convictions in the word of God, which says that fathers are to restrain and discipline their children. And it was exactly the same with Absalom, which is one of the reasons that Absalom is mentioned here. This is history repeating itself. And here we're given in a single sentence what the second book of Samuel tells us at some length, that part of the explanation for what these sons became was that their father had abandoned 
his God-given duty and responsibility. He lacked the moral courage to look his son in the eye and say no. We don't know whether something changed in David's soul through the business of his adultery with Bathsheba, but when David had personally caved in morally and spiritually, he was no longer able to say to his sons, my son, that is contrary to God's will. And the terrible repercussions of that failure were to plague David for the rest of his life. It's a solemn warning for us, isn't it? We see it every day, don't we? So many homes. Dad is pretty focused on his career. It occupies his mental energies. Um, discipleship in the family uh, comes a very poor second. In fact, he spends so little time with his children that when he does actually spend any time with them, he's frightened to say no. And then he wonders why later on they go off the rails. And you see, what we can learn from David's failure is that it is actually possible to be a mighty servant of God and yet when it comes to pastoral care in the home, to be a total disaster. And uh, when Adonijah's life spiralled out of control, David was too old and too weak to do anything about it. It was much too late. But then we see uh, God entering into this situation to save the day through the intervention of the third main character in the story, who is Nathan. So we're looking here at the intervention of Nathan in verses 11 to 27. He plays a big role in the rest of the chapter, and I think the story is told brilliantly. Because, you see, up to this point, the only thing that we've been told about Nathan is that no one's consulting him. The only reference that's been made to this man is to say that he's not really all that important. He's been out of the action. But as the rest of the story unfolds, the author of 1 Kings wants you and I to realize that you can never discount God's prophet. You can never leave him out of the picture. Why not? Because God's prophet sees what's going on. So on the one hand, he knows and he understands the word of God. But he also understands the heart of men. And he's able to bring those two things together. See, it wouldn't have been any surprise at all to the prophet Nathan that this young boy that he'd watched growing up over the years was now plotting and planning to destroy God's purposes. Other people couldn't see it, but that's precisely what Adonijah was doing, even if Adonijah didn't know it himself. Adonijah was being used as a pawn by the powers of darkness. And because we've read 1 and 2 Samuel, 
the very mention of Nathan's name almost in the same breath as Bathsheba is a signal to us. I don't know whether you've been to a children's pantomime. Some of you will have been, I'm sure. But when you go to a children's pantomime, there's always a moment when a certain character will appear on stage and you know that from that moment, everything's going to be fine. Well, this obviously isn't a pantomime. But do you remember that when Nathan appeared before, that he came to save the day? And so here, when Nathan arrives on the scene, our hopes are raised and the writer of 1 Kings wants us to be saying in our hearts, thank you, Lord. Here's someone who understands what's happening, who knows your will, and who's able to operate in such a way that God's purposes will be fulfilled. Because, you see, Nathan has always been the mouthpiece of God. First of all, speaking to King David about the sure and certain promise that David would have an heir on his throne and his throne would be secure. And then later, it was Nathan who spoke to David telling him that this child was Solomon, uh, was especially loved by God, he would sit on the throne. Now that is the context in which Nathan very shrewdly intervenes here by standing in between the frail and incompetent King David and all of the powers of darkness that are striving to destroy the promises that God has made. You see, that is what the prophet is there for. You know, he's acutely conscious of the effect that it would have on God's kingdom, on God's glory, if Adonijah were to become king. And so Nathan, who had once saved David's reign by his integrity and wisdom, he steps into the situation here in order to ensure that Solomon will be king. Now think about that, because I don't need to remind you, do I, that the Lord Jesus has done the same thing. You see, Jesus is our Nathan, isn't he? Because Jesus has come between us and everything that would have kept us out of the kingdom. And if you think about it now, because we as Christians belong to the priesthood of all believers, there is a sense, isn't there, in which we are those who've got hold of the truth of God in Scripture and to varying degrees have begun to understand human hearts and needs. And so like Nathan, now we stand in the gap in order that we might be the mouthpieces of God speaking his saving word to the people around us so that rather than losing the kingdom, they are kept safe and secure in Christ. And it's a great thing, I think, to be the kind of person who has the courage to intervene with God's word in a situation and see it through. So are you with me so far? In this story so far, we've, we've seen the frailty of David, the weakness of David, 
Then we're given an insight into the ambition of Adonijah. We've considered the intervention of Nathan. And then in the last bit of the chapter from verse 28 to the end, we have the coronation of Solomon. Now the big question about what is going to happen to the kingdom is raised in the words of verse 20 where Bathsheba says to David, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Now if you look down a few verses, you find Nathan essentially saying the same thing. Uh, In verse 25, Nathan says to David that there are people going around saying, long live king Adonijah. And then in verse 27, he asks, well, you know, is that something that my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who would sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Now, do you notice the words that are common to both of those statements? It's who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? That's the great question. Who is going to sit on the throne? And uh, the question is answered in verse 28, sorry, uh, verse 39. Verse 39, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! Now that is a body blow to Adonijah. And all of a sudden, His weakness is exposed. Verse 41, Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab asked, what's the meaning of all the noise in the city? Even as he was speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest, arrived. Adonijah said, come in, a worthy man like you must be bringing good news. Not at all, Jonathan answered. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. Isn't it interesting that so far in the story, David has been weak and incompetent. Nothing excites him. But now, God has broken into his life through his prophet and has given David kind of a fresh surge of energy to do what needs to get done. And even Jonathan, who's in the other camp, has to say, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And from that point on, the enemies of God are thrown into confusion. David bows on his bed and he worships, verse 48. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. And notice this. By and large, God hasn't even been mentioned in the story so far. But here at the end, David's eyes have been opened. And like David of old, he says, I can see now that God has been in this thing all the way through. God has used the scheming of Adonijah and his advisors to stir Nathan the prophet into action so that God's promise would be fulfilled 
and Solomon would become king. And as he looks back even just a few days, it must have seemed to David as if God was allowing things to happen that would actually undermine his own promise. And yet the truth is that all the time, God was working out his purposes and showing that although his ways sometimes seem very strange indeed to us, that he never, never, never fails to keep his word and his enemies are scattered. And you know, friends, it's not an accident that in the Gospels, Jesus describes himself as one greater than Solomon. You'll find that in Matthew and again in Luke. And he is greater than Solomon. But you see, the reason he says that is because he is also like Solomon. Because the same things happened to him. There were those proud and wicked men, the religious leaders who sought to divide his little band of followers. And there were the men who tried to destroy God's promise that Jesus would be the king of God's kingdom and sit forever on David's throne. But God turned their plotting into his praise. And he used their wickedness to accomplish the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Jesus and his resurrection to the throne of God to be our Lord. And ultimately, his enemies were scattered and destroyed. And you see, that's why the Apostle Paul, who describes Jesus as great King David's greatest son, says that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Now, friends, there are so many, many ways, different ways, that we can apply this story to our lives this morning. And I'm going to leave you to think about that this coming week. But how wonderful it is to know that as we sit here today, God has kept his promise. Because Jesus is seated on David's throne. And he is reigning and he will reign forever and ever. And the point is that if God has kept that promise then however mysterious and strange his providences might seem in our own lives, and however many roadblocks there might be, we can be sure that not one of his promises will ever fall to the ground. Let's pray. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, we are all locked into the same great conflict. And yet each of us, in a different part of the battlefield, each of us struggling in different ways to see how your word is going to be fulfilled in our lives. We pray for grace that as you reveal your promise-fulfilling character in the pages of Scripture, that we would learn that you are the same God, that you are the same promise-keeper and promise-giver, 
and that we have even an even greater guarantee that you will keep your word to us because you not only place Solomon on the throne of David, but you've placed our Lord Jesus Christ there to reign forever. So thank you, Lord, that though he was taken by the hands of cruel and wicked men, you raised him from the dead, you have exalted him, you are scattering his enemies and bringing in his kingdom. So help us to live in the assurance that you always keep your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.